I'm Barry Ritholtz. I host Masters in Business, a Bloomberg podcast, and I'm Chairman Chief Investment Officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management. And I'm panicked about Howard's level of panic. Jensen. Yes, Lindsen. I'm so bored with Canute. There's not much you can do with it. It's such a hard name. It's, it's just, you're Jensen. You can't do a nickname with a name that has four letters yeah. and you pronounce only three of them. It just sounds like we're coal miners and I got to go hard with the K-nut. And, and <laughs> it, it, someone should have corrected this. Earlier. I'm not sure we now have interns all over the studio clapping and Right. And uh, paying homage That's the to reason me. why. We got Ethan Burke in the studio. Yes, we Is do. Is he even allowed to talk? I'm here. Hey, have I done anything inappropriate in the last, how long have you been here? Uh, probably like three months. What was the most inappropriate I've behaved? Um, or have I been on good behavior? Like, you, or have you seen uh, something no, that no. goes down? This, yeah. is, this is one that comes top of mind. We're at a son's game. <laughs> I don't think that you were, as an intern, I don't think there was an answer that you were supposed to make. Well, Wait a minute, I'm taking interns to son's games, Canute? Jensen? What's up with that? Yeah. Canute likes to go. I don't think that made him feel good. And I have not been yet. Okay. Well, people, we're, we sit low, Canute, and I don't want to get complaints about people not being able to see over you, because then I may not be able to get to renew my... And then the chance start bringing in K-Nut. Bring in K-Nut. Because you stand there and take five fouls. It happens at every game. That's right. why it doesn't bring me anymore. Right. The, the intern. So, Canute, everything's good. Everything is All just right. wonderful. So, Thank Ethan, you. I took you to a game. Yeah, you took me to a game. Did I talk to you in a social setting or did I ignore you? No, totally ignored. No, I did I? <laughs> <laughs> Good deal. It's already picked up on the lingo. All right. Here. I've led myself down a slippery slope, so I ignored you. Yeah, and on the way out, there's a Rolls Royce parked behind us. We might have tapped it. <laughs> yes. And ah, then drove away. That is a Howard story. There was a tap. Allegedly. No, there was a tap. But, I mean, it was such a slight tap. And I was mad because someone had hit my Porsche that day. Oh. So I was paying it forward, Canute. <laughs> that, that's very nice of you. <laughs> As I call in in the industry, I was playing a dent forward. Huh. So uh, Ethan's seen things here in his, in his, his rookie season. It's kind of like Murphy Brown here. He's on edge, depending on my mood. He could be out. So uh, today, uh, it is, uh, where are we in the year? We are in a, uh, we're in the first quarter-ish. Yes, we are. March, heading into April. And uh, we had Josh Brown on uh, a few weeks, Some weeks ago, ago, I believe. Yeah. He killed it. We talked about nothing, which is kind of what I want to do on the show. And with Barry, I have a chance to further the discussion about nothing. The difference between Barry and Josh is, other than I like Josh more, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Batnick, is that uh, I've known Barry forever. He was kind of an inspiration in the early days. He, he, he was blogging. Maybe Kramer was before Barry, or, or, and it's that close. Maybe Barry was before Kramer. Um, Barry has avoided putting on makeup for the better half of uh, the 20 years since him and Jim Kramer. And we believe there's, there's not a big enough data set to prove this. It's just me and Barry at this point, uh, and Josh, because he does wear makeup. 
uh, but not. It hasn't <laughs> seemed to have infected his brain like The Last of Us. Barry doesn't put on makeup, and that makes him still, after 20 years, very enjoyable. You know, no screaming cut out of Barry. He has a best-selling book that should be back in the bestseller category as people think about this recent uh, banking crisis we're in, and the we'll discuss the bailout versus backstop. It is a backstop, but I don't want to be yelled at by the uh, the libs or the right. So I'll let you call it what I want. I think the Fed did the right thing and are providing a backstop for idiot bankers that don't know how to trade. And so I want to talk to Barry about that. He wrote Bailout Nation in 2008. He's nervous about my red pants. No. Oh, what was he, uh, what's he panicked about? He's panicked about other people being panicked. Yeah. Well, less. Barry thinks that way. Barry has started the firm Ritholtz Wealth Management. Before that, uh, well, nothing significant. I think he was underachieving. Uh, I used to tell him that, and hence I hooked him up. He used to come to Stucktoberfest yes. uh, b- before he be as a somebody, and he would bring that Brooklyn, Long Island accent from the island of annoying. And uh, we sat him next to Josh Brown, and now they have, I don't know, a six, seven, eight trillion dollar uh, asset management firm that is, uh, that, um, is really an incredible startup. And uh, they're really, what Josh and Barry bring to the business, uh, which I adore, which is wealth management and financial advice, is just they love the business and they don't love shouting ideas. So I wanted to get him back on because he's been so generous. He's had me on his podcast called Masters in Baiting. Uh, it's called Masters in Business, but we know it's a subtle, because Bloomberg carries it, he had to change the title from Masters in Baiting to Masters in Business. Um, he interviewed me way back when I talked really fast, didn't uh, medicate before podcasts. So if you go back, probably it was a one hour podcast, you probably listened in about four minutes. I don't think I breathed. I was nervous. So I'm, I've been constantly bugging for a, a guest uh, repeat master's in, in business, which he's always kindly uh, invited me when I'm in New York. And we'll do that. And he'll probably have some questions for me. Uh, he writes investing columns for Washington Post. He loves dogs. He went to the same university as, as Fred Flintstone, Stony Brook University. He has a degree in arguing on the internet and a minor in philosophy, which explains a lot of his career. He is a what? He was a member of the school's equestrian team. We went deep on this guy. Um, and when he retired, the horses uh, had uh, holiday. And uh, and that's it. What else has he done? He played in the NBA. I think that's fake. He passed uh, the bar exams in New York and New Jersey. Mm. And he practiced law for a few years. Oh my God! What hasn't he done? And by the way. Funny fucking guy. And he and I enjoy catching up. So why am I wasting so much time? Let's get him on uh, the pod. Barry! So so you're the one who backed up into my ghost? I get to send you the bill for that? <laughs> Barry, how, how you, Howard to move this? Just a touch-up was 10 grand. How Howard to move this? Up? This intern thinks he's got something on me, it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> What, oh my God! What, what that card is, did someone tap? Don't yours? even remember that's, that's it. And now that he mentions it, I can't believe I let an intern see me just hammer away at a Rolls Royce. You know, if it was the SUV, it is no harm, no foul. You can't make that thing uglier, even if you back into it twice. Honestly, so. what is? You're a car guy. What is your favorite? If I gifted you, I get in some delusional state and I say, hey, "Barry, I love that guy." Uh, what's the car you want? 
I already have too many cars, Ooh, so that's your that's your little. I knew that. That's your little because you have no kids. Uh, you collect uh, wheels. It's not that I collect wheels. It's that I buy cars and just never sell them. Most people, when they're done with a car, they sell it. I'm like, I like this car. I'm not going to sell it. You know, when I tell people, oh, an A12 GTS, they look at me. They have no idea what I'm talking about. When someone says, what what your favorite car? So rather than give you um, a car I'd like, why don't I just tell you about a project I'm in the middle of? I Since you mentioned your Porsche, I went out and I picked up an old 1987 Porsche 911 with 276,000 miles on it. And I am in the middle of the process of removing the engine, transmission, exhaust, gas tank. I don't think that makes it a Porsche a, anymore. Dropping a Tesla motor on the rear drivetrain. Canute's into cars. It, you guys, all right, I'll see you guys tomorrow. All right. You take over. All right, cool. So hang on, you're dropping a Tesla motor. And so does that make the car turn just to the right? Pure EV, just a pure EV. And, um, no, because it's it's an aftermarket Tesla motor. So Elon, it's an off <laughs> brand. Elon has no idea what I'm doing with it. So. Excuse me, I just so. saw a car that is turning left. Is that allowed? <laughs> the uh, <laughs> he is watching you. So Barry, you have opinions on everything, which is uh, why you and I have strong a- opinions, loosely held. Yeah. And what is the most trouble uh, an opinion has gotten you into in your business? Do you think? <sighs> I, I, that's really interesting. That's a good question. It's a it's a really interesting question. It's I don't think my opinions have gotten me into trouble, cause in part. So so my listen, we all manage our personal defects and strengths to the best we can, or at least one hopes. And most of my opinions that are problematic, I don't really give a shit about. It's it's if if I said something <laughs> you don't like it. I don't really care what you think about your opinion, especially if it's something that I am deeply involved with, with a wealth of research information, data analysis, history, experience, et cetera. When, when I literally finished writing Bailout Nation and I had spent, that was my graduate thesis, I spent you know 18 months doing a deep dive. And when someone says, just casually, well, you know, I haven't really spent a lot of time thinking about this, but my opinion, I'm like, let me stop you right there. Shit for brains. Nobody cares what your uninformed opinion is. So is shit for brains in bold? Or right. in no, no, no. That's just, you could put that in brackets. Italics? Because it's like, <laughs> you know, narrator speaking to shit for brains. Nobody cares what your opinion is because it's unfounded and uninformed. And I, I'm very fond of saying that one of the big problems with people who go on financial television and talk about markets and investing is nobody's willing or very, very few people are willing to say, I, I don't know, that's not my space. It's mm-hmm. uh, I-, I remember doing Brenda Butner's show way back when and back in the she, 2000s. Uh, she, she has a big OnlyFans audience. Who's Brenda Butner? Um, she used to be on Fox Business and I don't know Same what she thing. is these days. And Same thing. So, so I had done an analysis about Something correlating to you know how how unrelated who wins elections are to subsequent market performance, and so you know, and it's all about the investing repercussions of presidential election outcomes and why they really don't matter. Presidents get too much credit when things go wrong; they get too much blame when things go bad. And she ends the segment saying, "So who's going to win in November?" I don't know. Well, I know it's a close race. This was. 
had to be like 07 heading into 08, something like that. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it was, yeah, if I was doing TV, it was, uh, I started on Cudlow in like 03 or 04 something. So I don't know. I have no idea who's going to win. Now, well, you, you got to give us an opinion. Have you done a line with Cudlow? What? No, no, that was before. He he was doing that. There is that. no before. He's been a coke addict his whole life. No, he didn't he really? stop after Bear Stearns? Didn't, wasn't that the end of his... Uh, I'm uh, pretty sure it, that he was know, clean and sober. These lines are hard to separate. So yeah. is he... Is it true that he has bad breath? Uh, not that I've ever noticed. Okay, so that's another rumor I seem to have started. What? <laughs> uh, so let's talk... Let's actually get into some, some investing ideas. Sure. Market actions drive narratives. I love that you say it, I say it. We have a bunch of podcasters and venture capital uh, pontificating about this bailout. All of a sudden, and I'll say their names, the all-in pod, because I, I, unfortunately in my business, uh, I don't have to listen to them, but uh, my clients, some for some reason, listen to them. Mm-hmm. So I'm always either defending them or explaining their podcast for them. And when I have to explain it for them, I realize how asinine it all sounds. Because it feels fake, their their cursory understanding, and and I think that's a it's a cover up because they are wealthy. Yes, so yes. market actions drive narratives. What? How does that play out in this Silicon Valley bank uh, yield mismatch uh, crisis? So interesting question, and and two for two. Part of the reason we say market action drives narratives is because the opposite is false. Narratives don't drive market action. Market action is actually fairly random and mm-hmm. unpredictable, especially over the very uh, short term. The the you know a random walk, a drunkard's drunkard's walk, according to and you say the first draft Malfield. of history is mostly emotional, which is where we're right, at. This right, right. So 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 the reason we don't like the reason some of us don't care for narratives about the market is because it's always a combination of narrative fallacy and hindsight bias. Let, let me give you a quick example mm-hmm. before, you, before you drill down to what's going on currently. So I, I present at conferences all the time and I give, like you, I give plenty of public speeches. And one of my favorite questions I used to ask people in the early 2010s were, by, by show of hands, how many of you saw the financial crisis coming in advance? You saw housing, you saw derivatives, how many subprime? Raise your hands, like three quarters of the hands go up. Keep your hands up if you, uh, in light of having seen this, you uh, moved your equity to to all bonds or to cash mm-hmm. and a bunch of hands go down. And how many of you were short and the rest of the hands go down? And it's like, okay, so that was an example of hindsight bias. Everybody here is fairly convinced you saw a financial crisis where the markets got cut in half and housing lost a third of the value, but truth was all of you were long right into it. Now, let's ask again, how many of you really saw this coming and believed it enough to change your portfolio? And now no hands go up. So the reason we hate the narrative fallacy is because combining with hindsight bias, it makes us believe stuff that's just absolute nice. Of course, of course I knew the pandemic was going to crash the markets. Of course, I knew it was going to recover instantly. Of course, we knew big tech was going to benefit. And of course, we knew that would end a year or two later. And if any of that was the case, people would be putting up numbers, you know, plus 100, plus 200, plus 300% consistently. And they don't. (laughs) 
So if market action drives narratives, what, I mean, you, you run a, you know, multi-billion dollar RIA and you're head of strategy, head of the firm, knowing that, is that the key thing to explain to clients and why they should just asset allocate? Right, exactly. And, it's like, hey, nobody knows what's going to happen. So rather than guess and be right or wrong, right? Howard Marks you know, very, made this very astute observation. The fund managers who end up in the top 10% in any given year are also going to end up in the bottom 10% in a subsequent year because the only way you end up that degree of outperformance is your style, your sector, what, whatever you field you happen to plow is is in suddenly in vogue and then just in suddenly out of vogue. And so rather than guess and be very right or very wrong, hey, you own a broadly diversified portfolio of low cost indexes. Uh, you rebalance once a year. See you tomorrow. Yeah. I think what happened in this boom, walk me through it because I'm on both sides. Um, venture capital, unlike hedge funds, you know, because they're crops or because they're seasons or because they're vintages, um, being on top one year could mean five years, you know, or six years, right? Because the fund plays out on the J curve over or whatever you call this over six to 10 years. So you can, you know, unlike Kathy Woods, where it was, you know, it just seemed the crescendo seemed obvious because we all have seen that play before. I think it's been harder to find the false profits in venture capital because the, the the cycle lasts longer, or at least you're not marked every hour. Right, every hour, every tick. And when you say the cycle lasts longer, when you have a five to seven year lockup, well then, whereas you're not in the top decile every year, you have to shift that to every five or 10 years. And look, go back 25, 30 years. Who were Which the is biggest- why I switched because I couldn't, possibly believe in myself trying to compete against all these smartest people in the world on a tick by tick basis that, that well but think about who were the top vcs 10 years ago and 20 years ago and 30 years ago and you know it seems to change every generation the top vc 30 years ago you want to say it was kleiner uh kleiner perkins yeah it's kleiner sequoia there's there's, there's, uh, Sequoia seemed to have maintained its rankings brand, better than yeah. Kleiner. Mm-hmm. Um, Andreessen Horowitz came in out of nowhere and, and took over the top spot. I, I haven't seen a, a recent Not in terms rating. of returns, maybe in terms of brand. Uh, that, that's exactly right. And, and go on and on. There, there are lots and lots of movement, movement because what makes you great in the first place isn't often the same thing that keeps you great going forward. And that's true across all sorts of fields. Um, doesn't stocks, private equity, sports? Uh, you could you could very easily um, look at music and the things that make a particular band super hot. Hey, the the world changes, the cycle turns, and you know people move on to the next thing. And we are a new cycle. Is this the bookmark that says for sure we're in a new trend or is this just a continuation of trend with the with the banking crisis like is this all this is still all i mean in the end it's really it's still 10th order effects of the first great financial crisis yes uh, but but if we were to look, go back and say okay let's just say covid like the the cycle was going to end in 2020 whether we liked it or not and covid uh, kept the party going for two years is this a bookmark on what is a new potential move 
in market action, or is this just a continuation of something bad? There is something to be said that the 2020 collapse recovery, $5 trillion in CARES Act 1, 2, and 3 in fiscal stimulus, the Fed taking rates to zero, and then the Fed bringing up to four and three quarter plus whatever they do by the time this airs, you know, there's an argument to be made that that creates a giant reset and you start all over. This wasn't an economic induced recession or a market induced crisis. COVID was, you know, the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs. That's an exogenous event separate from what normally happens in markets and the economy. When we go back throughout history and look at those sort of things, assassinations, war, terror attacks, markets wobble and then they resume their, their prior trends. And so the question is, if you didn't have that massive sell-off and recovery and giant fiscal stimulus, might we have been in just, this could be year 10 of the new secular bull market that began in 2013 when markets made new all-time highs uh, for the first time since- um, the 2000 crisis. So people have a tendency to want to measure a bull market from the bottom. Like March 2009 is where the bull market starts. It's not how it works. Remember, we think about like 82 to 2000. That was a giant bull market. That bottomed in 1973. You don't you don't go back that far. So 10 years kind of gets you two thirds of the way through. So I don't know the impact of this reset of this new Fed regime of what this new I don't want to call them bailouts, but but new set of interventions with banks. It's it's really impossible to guess. You know, I'm not a macro tourist. I don't like to say, okay, I'm going to scratch my chin and tell you how the world plays out. Uh, that's a recipe for losing money. All that said, you know, it's hard not to look at a lot of what's taking place and say, when this all when the dust settles. We may end up being in a better place than we were, and, and, and you could be a little optimistic once we get through this mess. And what has been the overall, because you know my clients are all a certain accreditation, and since Silicon Valley Bank is so closely tied, although we don't bank there as a fund anymore, you know, the last couple funds, um, we had a lot of companies that do and as we invest at a seed stage, so, you know, our responsibility, and I'm sure we dodged a bullet, but I think that was their job, to, to, unfortunately, right now on mm-hmm. the deposit side. So I got lucky, call it whatever you want. But what was the general kind of financial client worried about during the last week? So we're big believers in being very proactive and not responding to... Um, a, a negative reaction to an event. That's that's why my initial response is, what are you panicked about? Not a whole lot. I mean, I'm certainly watching and paying attention, but panic is never productive or useful. We spend a lot of time when someone reaches out to us to become a client, explaining to them, hey, you know, as much as you might not have noticed this from 2010 to 2020, markets go up and down, you know, not just, uh, not just, not just down. And so people have been reading what we've been writing. We've been keeping them informed. I do a big quarterly call, you know, four times a year. Here's what we're seeing. We get a lot of requests and, hey, what, what do you think about this? Ask the clients. And, and when you start to see the same question about some meme or some something I've seen on financial TV that 
isn't exactly perfectly right. We we spend a lot of time using the media footprint, the blogs, the podcasts, the TV shows, YouTube to debunk some of the nonsense that's out there. Um, and that means sometimes saying, I don't think this contagion is, I don't think 2023 is like 2008, but it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility. Whatever it is, it's going to be different than 08 because back then every single bank was eating. They all went to the same buffet and they all ate the same poison food and they all got food poisoning. This is not quite the same thing. We're all upset about Silicon Valley because they bought treasuries at yeah. a bad time. That That's nothing like 0809 where everybody was buying crap and it blew up on them. Just as dumb from a portfolio management yeah. for getting illegal. And and I think one thing learned even maybe by the Fed here is they're not shaving, saving. I'm not as mad as I was in 08 because the executives aren't marching off and they're probably- right. Maybe not a perp walk, which is what we wanted in 08, or I wanted in 08. Um, and, but they're definitely not going to be walking away. Every transaction is going to be looked at this time. So they aren't going to get away with the things that Goldman got away with. Um, I think that's fair. And that's about all you can hope for. Like the second draft of history here, which is less emotional, will probably be more about, because the emotion should die down much quicker here, because we're just going to point at the Fed and, you know, the VCs are saying, oh, it was so obvious in 2020. Meanwhile, they were all my beef with the venture capitalists, you know, circa all in pod or whoever's the venture capitalist with the loudest voices out there on Twitter. Um, and that includes a lot of crossover investors is we saw this coming. And I'm saying, well, you saw it coming, but you were still writing checks because I was watching this at 50 to 100 times earnings. So you were talking out of both sides of your mouth. If you saw it coming, isn't the right thing to do for your clients? Forgetting your own money, because, you know, if you want to blow up your own money, great. Uh, that's what the markets are here for. But if you saw it coming, why were you writing checks at a 50 to 100 into private entities? And no one will answer that question. That's, you know, how the argument goes and dies on Twitter. But they're never going to answer that question because what they did is they raised more money and they put that money to work very quickly. And no one wants to talk about that. So, so much like CNBC um, a lot of Twitter, at least FinTwit, especially venture capital FinTwit, has become like CNBC, where they like talking about how good they are and forget how bad the behavior and activity. Do you follow that at all or you don't care? I, I would take it a step further than what you said. Not only did they see it coming, but they caused the run on the bank. They caused the run on Silicon Valley. That didn't just happen. That was a bunch of VCs thinking, Gee, a lot of our farms have more than 250K. Now, I'm not remotely excusing what Silicon yeah, Valley did. Yeah, there's some game theory did. there, and, and yeah, I, mean, I don't want to give them that much credit, to be honest. I know. Because... I, I think they legitimately caused a run on the bank. And I'm not saying, uh, you know, there's a, there's a better way to go about this. And I think we sometimes forget that in the... Um, current world we're in, there is a, a very, very rapid reaction to what you say and do during um, a bank panic. And I think mm -hmm. people legitimately forgot that, hey, you know, our network is not small and that our, our network has people with lots of other networks. And this is not going to just be a little whisper amongst Amongst family members, this is going to go, you know, wide. Um, 
so so again back to hindsight yeah everybody saw it coming that's why they overinvested right into the teeth of 2022 yeah. when the fed belatedly and then filled their coffers up again right like it was so, just so I was well i love the about pivot this. i love the pivot from this economy is on fire and we have to get into it to hey man everything's been repriced and we're going to set up a a distress fund to take advantage of these lower valuations. I love that. Right. And I remember that I personally remember saying, well, I, I would ask these VCs, I'm like, what are you guys doing? And they go, well, that's the market. And I'm like, I thought you were venture capitalists, not price takers. So what happened in our industry, everybody became a price taker, not a price maker. And this one, this one is freaking me out because, um, you know, because it's private and slower moving. I don't give them that much credit. I think it's game theory. And, you know, if Peter Till can take down the system, he's going to take down the system because, I don't know, he has no kids. Like, these people think <laughs> differently. No, I'm serious. Like, he has no allies. He is an ally to himself, right? Like, he lives in New Zealand. So, I mean, to expect- Is he in New Zealand him, now, really? I don't know. He has, like, a, a thing. But to expect these people to play non-game theory is impossible. And we all know this is the internet- you know, these black swans right. are now coming because of the internet, right? The speed of which you can tip, you know, like the, you know, what happened to Silicon Valley Bank's the opposite of what happened to GameStop. The internet models are different than every model that every smart hedge fund ever created. And what they thought was three standard deviations is just old. Uh-huh. If everybody clicks the same button at the same time in the internet era, things will break. So, so on the Fed's job, they do, they do their job. Like, how could they not, Barry, have seen that things would break looking at an interest rate chart? What, what do you, who, how do you come to terms with this? So I wrote a post a couple of weeks ago called the Fed is breaking things and it could get worse. Mm-hmm. And then Silicon Valley went belly up. So uh, I don't take any credit for that. It was just fortunate timing. Right. Um, and I'm looking at the same things that everybody else looked at. However, having spent a lot of time researching and studying the Fed for bailout nation, I will point out that first following the financial crisis to, to call back to what you brought up, that this is still the hangover from the financial crisis. The Fed stayed on emergency footing way too late through the 2010s at the same time as Congress failed to have an appropriate fiscal stimulus. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to 2020, um, the COVID pandemic shuts down the economy the market drops 34%, the Fed drops to zero. And then from the end of uh, March, early May till the end of the year 2020, the stock market rallied 68%. That That's a giant sign that the Fed should have gotten off their emergency footing. I'm not suggesting they should have been four, five, six percent because I didn't see inflation coming up this fast and being the sticky Although there's a, there's a lot of modeling problem and inflation really peaked last June and is much lower than Fed models are suggesting, but we'll, we can get into that later. So the Fed stayed at zero too long. In mm-hmm. March 2021, their 2% inflation target was breached by a rapidly rising CPI, which continued to go to three, four, five, six over the next couple of months. Despite this, the Fed stayed at zero from March 2021 till March 2022. And then in what looks like a panic, um, raise rates way too fast. And what I mean by that is not the level of rates. Rates at four and three quarters today, historically, 
those are fairly modest interest rates. Those are actually lower than the rates that help generate, uh, or at least the mortgage rates that help generate the financial crisis, one of 50 factors that caused the GFC. So it's not that the rates objectively are so high relative to zero, they are much higher, but it was the rapidity in which they raised yeah. rates that broke things. And so I think the Fed was late to get off zero, off their emergency footing, late to recognize inflation, late to begin raising, late to recognize the danger of rapid raising. And now I think that they missed the peak of inflation. Um, so many different things, Lomberg, going on the list, energy, um, uh, it's just uh, shipping containers, just one thing after another have come back down to either pre-crisis levels. Clearly, the rate of change has has dropped dramatically. We're not quite in deflation, but we're certainly in disinflation. And we know there's a big lag on Fed policy. So in a perverse way, the banking crisis may force the Fed to do what they should have been doing already, which is, hey, we're going to take a break, see what the impact of our increases are in the economy, and see if, uh, you know, you don't need to throw millions of people out of work in order to uh, in order to, to break inflation. And if there's any inflation anywhere, it's in services, it's not in goods, and services are driven by housing, and housing is driven by the Fed. So all the people who can't afford starter homes, they're going to rent to rentals and that drives rental prices up. And that is um, something that is the perverse paradox action of the Fed raising rates so rapidly, they are actually increasing the services portion of CPI inflation. That's what I wanted to hear from you. Uh, I'll take a break here and we'll be back after this commercial break. Yeah, I just did a line. Uh, <laughs> What's his name from uh, Larry Kudlow just passed me a line, so we're ready to keep going. <laughs> Moody's and S&P, is that just a tax on us wanting to invest? What is the there fuck? any entity worth less than Moody's and S&P? So why are they here? Like I, I saw like where they put out their junk rating. It's a after joke. The... It's a joke. So if everybody knows it's a joke, it has to be there for I don't a know reason. What they, I don't know what point they serve. I, don't, I, I know that there is a statutory reason for some people to hide behind ratings um but the reality is it's meaningless that they, they they are you know they, they just don't serve any purpose i don't i don't I understand don't it. it so uh, that's infuriating but i guess no one seems to be at scale caring about this everybody has ideas but no one seems to be bringing up uh, this hidden tax on the system Here, which is... here's an idea i'll give you an idea fuck them stop giving them fees <laughs> Remove the requirement that you pay these worthless. I mean, uh, in November, when the Wall Street Journal did an article that kind of danced around what is Silicon Valley Bank's um, exposure to long dated treasuries, they were already down 70% and there was no change in their rating. If someone comes along and the body is on the floor having fall, fallen 50 um, feet out a window and it's in a crumpled heap. Somebody just kind of toes the body, kicks it once, twice, and says, yeah, he's dead. Hey, thanks. You, you're, I, I'm not paying you for that. Go away. Get away from my crime scene. It, it's just completely and totally shocking that somehow they have weaseled their way into the system and mandated, as you describe, a tax. Yeah, it's just a tax. Just, there's still these things that somehow are sneaking by here 
that need to get disrupted. What are you excited about? What is like, because you like tchotchke, you like what I do. You have started things. Obviously, Ritholtz is a startup. Ritholtz Wealth is a startup. Uh, what are the toys, you know, besides cars and dogs? What are the things, and dogs aren't toys. We do, love do, dogs, we, do we like, want to talk about what we're doing professionally or just my own stupid hobbies? I think, I think. You know, professionally is professional. What are the things that like get you that you love playing with? What are because you 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 are tech pretty savvy. Is there like gadgets or is there a piece of software or is there a utility or is there an app that you've recently downloaded that just makes you go? Sure, a couple of things. So first, um, everything in the house has has rapidly. You know, I remember ten twenty years ago. There were all these new doodads that were called sm- make your home a smart home, and none of these things worked. It's like smart contracts. They're dumb contracts. Right. So The now more your tech- home became smart, the dumber you became. Right. So now, the technology, like, a, I don't know if you've ever come home late at night from an event or a show or something, and your house is pitch black because the lights that are on a timer went off at midnight and it's two in the morning. Um, now you can put that on an app and say, turn on my front lights, turn on the-. like that sort of technology is really kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I've been enjoying playing with that as a tech. Um, and what about any new firearms that you're using? Um, I just use a short range <laughs> plasma rifle and that's, uh, that's because you protect your land, Barry Reynolds. Right. Short range plasma rifle is, Hey buddy, just what you see here. Is a, an obscure reference to the Terminator, and, and I'm shocked you didn't pick it up. But um, I didn't because you are a little geekier than me. Your two favorite guests that you've ever had on. What year is is uh, Masters of Baiting uh, uh, going on? It was launched July 2014, so this summer <sighs> will be our ninth year, our 500th episode. So I just had Cliff Asness on this past weekend. Mm-hmm. So, How do you pronounce that name? And if you As- say it fast, Asnes. are you calling him an ass? Asness. Um you call him whatever you want. They run a hundred billion dollars, and and he's yeah. Well, Moody's and S and P are real companies too, Barry. <laughs> um, the difference <laughs> like, don't is don't throw numbers at me. The like, difference I mean, is you know. he, he earns his money through his, his LPs, not through a tax. No, I'm kidding. He's but you know what I mean. I just when we go to these, some of the smartest people I know are just starting out. Hence, emerging managers, right? They have a unique network. You know. They have a unique viewpoint on things. It mm-hmm. may not last forever, but we're not giving these young people. Uh, and that was what was so great about 2006, even through the great financial crisis. Uh, you know, and, and it may be the old cranky pants, but that was so great. Obviously, the pendulum switched so much to uh, the opposite, uh, where we were just piling idiots in with money with that had no proof that they could do anything. But it was a special moment when emerging, you know, at the end of the what I call financial leverage era and the beginning of the social leverage era, um, we gave so much credit to emerging people because of YouTube and because of Twitter and LinkedIn, all these emerging products. Oh, I you don't think that's why. obviously have a great reason. So walk me through Cliff Asnes because people don't know who he is. He's a so, quant. So back up a and second. And if he's so smart, why not change his name a little bit to take out the ass? As, not ass, number one. I know, but that, number two. He's ass to me. One of the one of the reasons we're intrigued by emerging managers is because a lot of, a lot of academic research shows that alpha amongst the hedge fund community and and other private communities is primarily a barbell. It's these um, emerging managers who identify an an inefficiency 
and are generating alpha before that inefficiency is widely understood Correct. and arbitraged away on one end of the barbell. And then on the other end of the barbell are a group of folks who have typically through quantitative mathematics, but sometimes through other methods, have developed a way of generating a return above and beyond that that the market gives you. And these are the DE Shores, the Renaissance Technologies, the AQRs. Mm -hmm. Go down the list of all the top performing Yeah, it's like Google. Funds. They have enough information and, and edge. They have to survive. They're wired to survive. Um, they're wired to outperform to if thrive, their yeah. beliefs, if their technological and quantitative advantage and the philosophy that underlies it. So Asnes began out as in the world as a value plus momentum advisor. Gene Fama was his doctoral thesis professor at University of Chicago. So here's a guy who's goddamn smart working with Fama. I first person to write a paper on momentum mm -hmm. as a as a, a possible factor. Mm -hmm. And now AQR runs 40 different strategies and you know they've been crushing it the past couple of years. And so anytime you I I don't want anybody to give me a stock pick or tell me where what the Fed's going to do or where the Dow will be next year. I love talking to the guys or girls who can say to me, here's my process, here's how we make it better, here's how we constantly iterate, and, and this is what's led to our success. Anytime I have the ability to learn at the feet of someone like that, that gets me super excited. On the other hand, when we see you know all the young emerging managers, well, some of them do really well. The question that it's very hard to tell early on Mm -hmm. Is that skill? Is that luck? Was it just right place, right time? Or do they have persistency? Can they continue to generate outperformance over time, net of fee? And the data tells us that's, you know, 3% of managers end up in that persistent alpha creation. And even amongst that group, it doesn't last forever. But if you get 10, 15, 20 years out of it, you know, you're crushing it. Yeah, I'm so grateful because I'm not stupid enough to think it's me. You know, my partners are super smart, but it's as we end this era or begin this next era, and I'm 57 on, you know, I feel I have. Wait, you're younger than me? How is that possible? You look like you're 10 years older than me. I'm I pretty sure when you're I was in your 40, like, late but I don't 60s. Know. Josh calls me Benjamin Button, so you is don't that, pay much attention just, to that. Just getting younger and younger as time goes on? You have a mirror somewhere that's aging. Right now, I'm wearing three times magnifying. Reading glasses to stare at a podcast thing. That's how fuck I'm Mr. Magoo of podcasting at this point. I forgot to take him off and now I'm dizzy. So, so, Mr. so talk Magoo to me quickly. Of podcasting. I, we, we, That's I have hilarious. A, a million other questions. Did you have any questions for me? Speaking of emerging manager and how I, I don't, I don't even know where to begin, Mr. Magoo of podcasting. So let me ask you this question. Um, you've had some fantastic investments over time, right? And, and I, I put down your pitch to me on Robinhood as one of my great all-time worst trades. Howard, but maybe it was the, a bad pitch. Um, no, it was me. It, it was way outside of our brand and what we do. Mm -hmm. But I remember telling my brother, uh, what, what, do you, what do you think of this? And, and I lis he listens to me repeating the pitch. He goes, what do you think? I said, I think it's the dumbest fucking idea I've ever heard. Wait, free trades for millennials in an era of low-cost passive, that, that sounds terrible. I know. And, and so I just got to laugh at myself. But here's my question for you. Pitching it like you. that back to me, but that's not how I saw but it. But yeah. I know that. But here's my question for you. Mm -hmm. 
Is your approach like so many VCs approach? Are you shotgunning it on the assumption 90% of these are going to suck, but I got to have no, a big I enough hate net that. I hate to that capture idea. that 100X? Or are you actually evaluating each individual portfolio company and saying, here's why I think this has a, you know, you're looking for that asymmetrical, I'll make a 1% bet that these guys have a 10 to 20% chance of succeeding. I would say that, to be honest, it's just changed over time, right? Like, uh-huh. I, I, I'd like to think that I'm a little more professional. Um, so I'm going to give most of the credit to the, the my success was just the work that I didn't know I was putting in the wax on, wax off stuff of just uh-huh. losing money and investing and just learning. And then technology inspired me to change and adopt and see the future, just not like five years ahead, like uh, the MIT people, but like a user, like someone who was a disappointed CNBC watcher, someone who was a disappointed, you know, Wall Street Journal person, someone who started out loving Kramer, but realizing, you know, that wasn't for me and Yahoo Finance. So it was like, I had so much experience in the stuff that I couldn't stand using that I wanted to scratch my own edge. So that's from the entrepreneurial side. And then I think the entrepreneurial side, as luck and timing would have it, and obviously we did well, um, you know, I did well as an entrepreneur selling to CBS. Then the opportunity came where the products were so good, it just became, how could you not? My seat at the table gave me access. So I think, you know, combined with macro lining up perfectly. So I think too many people are just not being honest about why they did it. In a perfect world today, as a 57-year-old, the process is so much more evolved, which is we're professionals. Like, I hate to say it, and we have some boundaries for how we write checks, less feeling, more, you know, rigorous, you know, work. But, you know, the art part of our business, the early-stage business, is something that I feel I have an edge up because I look at the world completely differently. But in the end, we don't like that idea that 90% are going to fail. I just think that's the wrong attitude. Why can't 90% of these work, Um, especially because of tech and if you fund them right? What upset me most was the last three years when discipline was just thrown out the window. And, you know, I don't have any one person to blame. The markets just suck everybody in at the wrong time. So I've had four layups in my life, I've talked about them here, which is LifeLock, uh, Robinhood, me starting StockTwits was just a layup for me. And then, um, you know, there was just two mogul, but there was just a bunch in that early days because I was living it so intently. I think you have to be honest with yourself. If you're not living something intently, and for you guys, that's wealth management, so you see the wealth tech stuff, I think your edge... You're pushing, you're, you're, you're cheating yourself and you're form-fitting uh, some dangerous type things into your investing philosophy because you really have to dominate. You can't get by in this world just being the market. And by the way, if you want the market, that's what's so beautiful about stock investing. You can actually buy the market. Right. I think it's a very different animal when you're looking at privates with a long lockup and you're making a bet on something, look, I could tell you here's what the long-term returns of equities are. And if you buy this sector or this type of stock, here's how you move away from that that benchmark. There's a ton of data. 
When you're saying, I'm betting on this company that can, to quote Steve Jobs, dent the universe, hey, there's a lot of randomness in that. That's, that's a little bit of a crapshoot. Yeah. And so I, I think it's a very different headspace than betting on equities where, to quote Howard Marks, you just want to end up in the middle of the pack and you yeah. do that consistently over time. That's how you end up as a top decile long-term performer. You're never going to be top 10% in any one year, but you're never, this is the key, if you're never bottom 10% in any one year, Correct. just think about what it means to beat half of your competitors every year. Correct. You do and that's that what, consistently. It's amazing. That's what 2020 to 2022, it, it uh, made a lot of bottom 10%ers uh, able to also sound themselves like experts. Um, and that's, that I don't know how long it's going to take to clean that up. It's probably across every industry. You know, this goes to your narrative comment. This was the opposite. There are so many bottom 10 percenters. Uh, it's harder to be in the 1% as hard as ever. It's pretty easy to be in the bottom 10%. And this era's uh, created a fucking batch of those. And uh, let, me, you know, let me quote Scott Galloway, who has a great line. Yeesh. He said, it's never been easier to be a millionaire. Am I getting it backwards? It's never been easier in history to become for the wealthy to become billionaires, but it's never been more difficult for someone from the bottom half of the wealth distribution to become a millionaire. And think about that. If you're in the top, I don't know, 10, 20%, you know, in the United States, everything is geared to you. If you're in the bottom half, economic mobility has contracted over the past you know, fill in the blank, to 10, yeah. 20, 30 it's years. It's too broad for me I, as someone who now reaches out. Because, you know, I have self, I have my blog. So it's form fits people that think in a weird way. So so I, Howard Lindzen had to have a master's degree, had to have like these weird wealthy upbringing to kind of get where I am. But now because I put that vibe out there, I'm not saying I can pick people out from the dregs, you know, the, the people that are in poverty, but there's still, I mean, Scott's obviously a great writer, but you know, when you have to come up with quotes every time to go on CNN and these things, he lost, he lost me. Obviously a brilliant thinker. And, and a very speaker. successful entrepreneur. He's, he's very made a ton of money. But that doesn't mean you can't also be an ass. <laughs> and, uh, which we know you can, two things can be true, right? You can be a great founder and a was shitty that a public company was CEO. That a, was that a confession? <laughs> it's just something that, that, you know, it's an old quote that just, as I get old, uh, I can feel young and still look like Mr. Magoo when I put on my glasses. You know, that two is the things nature can be of true. aging. So one other guest, quickly before we go, one other guest uh, that you just love besides Cliff Asmus. The first time I had Ray Dalio on was mm -hmm. so spectacular <sighs> because, really? so keep in mind, before Principles came out. Was it really that he came or was it a body double? So I had From met China. him, I had met him at some Bloomberg event like 10 years earlier, and it was a whole, I wrote it up, it was a whole crazy experience, and I just talked to him for five minutes, and it was crazy, it was in just bonkers. Mm. And so he did a pre-interview, and I'm like, Ray, you may not remember this, but we met at that St. Pat's church at some event. Nope, never saw you before. All right. So he shows up for the interview. We, we It's a 7 a.m. recording. He shows up a half hour early, 6.30 in the morning, and I'm mm. sitting around waiting for him. And he walks in, and back then he's like 6'8", he's a tall guy. Oh, and he I didn't comes know that. striding across the sixth floor of Bloomberg, which is where all the elevators go and all the food is. And he's like, I remember you. We spoke at a right. So we started talking 
like for the half hour before the interview. And normally that that's bad strategy. You don't want to leave it in the locker room. But he used to be a notoriously bad interview, a very prickly interview. And I just kind of loosened him up. And we were schmoozing and just like he just was kind of, he's got a rep, he had a reputation. I don't think he still has anymore because he's done so much public speaking since then. He had a reputation as being a hard guy to sit down and get him to answer questions. And I happen to remember that his, um, if you open up principles, there's a series of squiggles, which is his failure loop. Try something new. It doesn't work out. What mistake did you make? What can we learn from it? How do you build that into your model? Try it again and constantly try, fail, learn, try, fail, learn, try, fail, learn. Yeah. And his, his, somebody in his office told me that he went on some show. If you read just the first 10 pages of the book, it's clear what that is. And so they're interviewing him and they open the book and they're like, Ray, what sort of a signature is this? And we sat down and the second before we record, I flipped the book open. I go, hey, Ray, before we record, what the fuck kind of a signature is this? And he like hesitated for a half a second, realized I knew the story and I, I understood the mistake loop and said, can you believe that? Hey, not everybody preps for a podcast. And I, I, I do. And so at that point, it was off to the races and I got him to say stuff that honestly, I don't think he's ever said up until that point. He was loose. He was fun. He was like, he, you know, isn't exactly known for having a great, a, a big sense of humor. He was funny. He was just great. So to me, that was always like, oh, so you got to get the person to loosen up and smile and make them relax. And that's my job as a host to not just read a list of questions, get them. So so that's why that was one of. Well, I mean, those, are two, you- those are two great ones that I wouldn't have thought of that I will listen to. You like sitting, um, eating. Is there a show? <laughs> just give me one show that you're watching right now. You don't have to dive into why. Uh, Daisy Jones and the Six, we started watching on Amazon Prime, and I'm only four or five episodes in. And so far, that's been like all upside surprise. What is creativity? How is art constructed? Okay. What affects who people are, how they interact? Because I bet you do the same thing. You watch some show on something that has nothing to do with startups or finance or business. And there are all these lessons that I'm like, oh, so don't be an asshole. That's a, that's a big lesson. Let me write that down. Oh, you know what? Make sure everybody in the group is contributing and everybody will go further, work harder, do better if they feel that it's not just, you know, the Josh show or the Barry show. If it's RWM and company and it's all of us, every, all the horses pull in the same direction and they're equity participants and they feel like they have something at stake. Don't just make it about, you know, me or Josh or anybody else. Uh, you could pick up all these wonderful lessons from all sorts of things if you are looking at it that way. Well, you're the man. Thanks for taking time. The uh, Look forward to breaking uh, for a meal with you soon, buddy. And keep cranking. I'll see you at, uh, by, by the oh, way. you're coming to our event. Uh, I'm coming to your event. Uh, and if I've never said thank you, I heard you say this in the intro. Let me just take 30 seconds and say... I get invited out to a Lindsay Palooza 10 years ago, right? Oh, maybe 12 years ago. And uh, it's it's winter, it's cold, it's dark, it's ugly in New York. Sure, I'll go to San Diego. I wake up, it's cold, it's dark, it's foggy. It's like, I thought this was California. I don't care. I'm going to the pool anyway. 
And I go sit at the pool in the pl- in the dark. There's one other fat schmuck there like me. And these two putzes sit around the pool, start talking. And from there, Ritholtz Wealth Management was born. That's where I met Josh. We were literally he sitting He says you just pool. ordered butter. Is there any truth to that? You just- Something. So so it's not that I ordered butter. It's that as much as I'm entranced by technology, there is an argument to be made that salted butter is the peak <laughs> of human achievement. <laughs> it is we, so it's good. been downhill since then. Put it on a piece of bread. You know, what is what is absolutely objectively better than that? But literally that is where the two of us met at Linz and Palooza. And, you know, he he was the joke was, what do I have to do to go from the sell side to the buy side. And my response was, you know, cut that mullet and come work for me. We'll, we'll put you on the buy side. And <laughs> well, you know, we never I look see, back. He's, he's the best. I see Conan O'Brien on his comedy show. What it makes me a fan is the mentoring and all the people that he's launched. So it's fun to uh, have this kind of history with everybody now. It's about 20 years. So Right. Look at, look at the list of people. That, it's amazing. That the, it's, it's just astonishing. That came out of, that came out of, the stock twits that came out of that. No, Josh calls the street.com the Motown of finance. And I love that phrase. Um, and, and you know, I, I could say Ritholtz Wealth Management has how many bloggers and podcasters and YouTubers. And it's not that we've ever said, I know, let's blog and it'll bring us clients. It's always been, I, I got I to gotta get this out because it's important and other people on the internet are wrong. And eventually, people see that and say, oh, I, I like the way these guys think. Well, you're the man. I'm going to let you go. Uh, Knut uh, said uh, that he went for lunch. He just left a note saying uh, when the tape runs out, just uh, the cloud <laughs> should handle the rest. Right. And I uh, look forward to uh, coming on Masters in Business at some point this year. Looking forward to it. So, Knut, hey. our old friend Barry, you'll I see him this Barry. weekend. The uh, You are listening to Panic with Friends, Knut and I, and uh, the intern of the week uh, comes, sits down, and we talk to investors, traders, uh, wealth managers, people just trying to stay a little bit ahead of the curve, price, the narrative. Uh, you can find us on Google, uh, Spotify, uh, I don't know, search my name on the internet, Howard Lindzen, Panic with Friends, and you should subscribe. Uh, the best place, probably YouTube, Spotify, Apple. Anyways, have a great day, everybody, and we'll see you next Thursday. Howard Lindzen is the founder and general partner at Social Leverage. All opinions expressed by Howard and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Social Leverage or StockTwits. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. Guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast.